Well, we're in 1 Corinthians, so go ahead and find your way to 1 Corinthians, and uh, let's go there and, and do the text. So find yourself to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It will be from verse 10 to 17, so if you want to stand, let's stand, and we'll read the text as you guys can look across at one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 10. This is the reading of God's holy word. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this section today, there's nothing that can destroy your church faster than division. Lord, we are watching our world seemingly crumble around us. The division on the media and the politics and on our Facebook feeds and in our homes is rife. It's everywhere around us. And Father, the world wants to uh, cause us to bring that division into the church. And I ask that your word today would be a balm to our souls, that we would know as a church what it means to be united in Christ that this would be a sermon that encourages us to have grace with one another, to, be, uh, to hold the unity that we have with one another as not only an act of faithfulness on our part, but an act of worship. We praise you, God, and ask that as the world sees us and our love for one another, they would truly see that we are your disciples and that you are our Lord. We praise you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So go with me, if you will, to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. I want to start here and try to introduce the sermon a bit. And we're um, going to be moving around a bit today, but I'm trying to take big chunks of Scripture. One of the biggest challenges, I think, that we face when we get to the New Testament as opposed to the Old is that there's a lot more happening in a lot less space, okay? A lot more theology is happening in a lot less verses. But to begin with, I want to talk about Titus. In Titus chapter 3, verse 1, this is Paul's letter to a pastor about really how to run the church. And this is important for us because we've been talking about ecclesiology, the, the study of what it means to be the church. And so he writes to Titus, he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Notice this, this verse two, it's not just to remind them to be submissive rulers and all that, but to, to do what? To not quarrel and speak evil to, to no one and be gentle and have per- perfect courtesy. That Paul's advice is that in the church, this needs to be the way of life. And notice why. He says in verse three, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He said that this is how we used to be. That literally a mark of our non-belief in, in our lives was the way we treated each other. And he says, but, verse four, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, 
we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. What he's saying is, I want you to insist on what? That we show perfect courtesy towards one another, that we actually get along, that we avoid quarreling and whatnot. He says, to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, And then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. What a powerful word the Apostle Paul has to Titus in this moment. He's saying, look, the division is a big deal. Unity in the church is such a big deal that when you mark someone who's causing division, there's no counsel, there's no multiple meetings, there's no sitting down with that person. It is marking them and having nothing to do with them. Division is a huge deal. Unity is a huge deal. Why? Go with me to 1 John really quick, and let's take a quick survey through this before we jump into really the, the, the bulk of what we're going to say. So 1 John chapter 2. Why, why such firm words? Because we have two options when we see these words that Paul has. We can look at these words and think that he's just speaking in hyperbole, that he's just saying, hey, division's a bad thing because we want you all to get along, and that's just so nice. Um, But there's a reason for his concern, for his his large concern here. So if we go to 1 John uh, chapter 2, let's look at verse 7. So John writes, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. He's referring to the old commandment, which is really to love uh, and treat others the way you want to be treated. This is sort of the commandment that we go out about in our lives. When the community says, hey, let's love our neighbor, let's think of them the way we want to be treated and treat them that way. That's the old commandment. Love your enemies as yourself, so to speak. Because at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you. And this is where we have to understand the the gravity of what we're doing right now. It's a new commandment, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Notice what John's doing here. He's saying like, look, you want to see a litmus test for the genuineness of your faith, which is what first John's all about. He's like, how do you feel about your brother? See the new commandment part of these things is that Jesus says in John 13, 34 and 35, listen, I, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I've loved you. And he's not saying to love the world, love one another, that there's a unique call to the people around you that we love one another in such a way that it's the way Christ loved you. So how did Christ love me? He died on a cross for me and I definitely didn't deserve it. And I was against him. That's how we're to treat one another. For the world, we still love them and treat them the way we want to be treated. But there's something unique and a high calling for how we treat one another. And John's showing us it's the litmus test for our salvation. The the reason division is such a big deal in the church is because it's a a symbol of hating our brother and not valuing them properly. He goes on in uh, chapter three, verse 10. Notice what he says. By this... It is evident who are the children of God. What doctrine you know, um, how much you you give at church, how much you serve. No, no, no. By this is evident who are children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 
For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. He's talking about this, this, this initial moment, right? The beginning of Genesis of, of, of jealousy, right? And, and murder that came as a result of this. He says, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we pass out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this, we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Notice again, this emphasis here that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. There's a call to a unique kind of favoritism in our lives towards the church. We need to remember that today. He goes on, keep going, follow with me to chapter four, verse 19. And I love this new setup because you all see each other turning. So if someone's just sitting there, it's okay. No worries, no, no, no stress. He says in verse 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And he goes on in chapter five, one says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. In John's eyes, it seems like the way we treat one another is the ultimate and visible test of our genuine faith. It's not knowledge. It's not service. It's not sacrifice. It is the supernatural unity that we have in Christ, that we are actually related together as brothers. It is the visible sign that he is our Lord and that we're his disciples. Let's take a quick look at a video. Burn. <laughs> now, every one of you that has, uh, that asked each other to hang out now that the social distancing is somewhat over, you're going to feel anxiety that you're all against each other. I get it. Go to Genesis chapter 10. Hey, do you want to get coffee? Oh, no. Genesis 10. Verse 32, I want to begin for a minute and, and talk about unity right now because it's a big subject in our culture. And I want to talk about race again because it's a, a big subject in our culture because really this is one of the things I think that's a, a doctrine that's coming in the church and dividing uh, churches and Christians so much. But if you look at Genesis chapter 10, look at verse 32. Moses tells us, God writes through Moses, the, uh, talking about the genealogy of Noah. It says, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. In verse 32, it's important to recognize that there were no races in the Bible. There's one race. Everyone came from Noah. Everyone else was dead. They all died in the flood. All of us have the same parents. The Bible says that. If you're a Christian and you want to say something else, you don't believe the Bible. There's one race, and we all have Noah as the ultimate uh, line that we go through, ultimately through Adam. Think about this, and notice it tells us in chapter 11, 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. The, the unity that we're going to see here is important to recognize. It says, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. It's not the land of Shinara, but it's the land of Shinar. And they said to one another, 
Come, let us make, bri- make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we just be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, when we read this first point, I want to acknowledge that this is total and utterly kumbaya unity of people and humanity. They all recognize they're the same family, they're the same language, everyone's together. And if you look the way we talk today, everyone says, hey, the purpose of the gospel is to bring us back to this. We need to have all this this moment of understanding how every race, every person gets together and our focus is on these things as if that's the basis of unity. And we see, wow, what a great unity it is. And yet what happens? It says, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they're one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. This all sounds really good, doesn't it? It says, come, let us go down there and pat them on the back and tell them good job. No, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. There's a few things happening here. The first is the recognition that man's unity outside of Christ, outside of God itself, is ultimately a unity and rebellion to God. God had told man to spread abroad, and they said, no, no, let's stay together and and build a name for ourselves. And that was their goal. And the the idea here was this unity. We would say, hey, unity by itself is a great thing. And everyone talks about unity. We're talking about unity all the time. But, and this is a perfect unity, but it was a unity in rebellion to God. And all the unity that we could try to, to come up with is the same thing. It's rebellion to Christ, which is why he says, look, I'm gonna divide your languages. There's a degree in which all the different languages of the world are God's common grace to keep man from naturally unifying in rebellion to him. That's really what's going on. And so as we have the internet, which is the new Babel, we can all talk to people from all languages, Google Translate, we all know, and we all come together to do what? To sin grievously against the Lord. And that's really what's going on. And so when we talk about unity and we bring it to the church, we say, well, wait, if we could all just reconcile, you know, racism and, and intersectionality and all these things, we'll have real unity. And I'm like, that's not the basis of these things. Paul's argument to the Corinthians is the argument that we need to see, and it's going to show us a few things. It's going to show us if we really want to talk about real unity from the church, we need less talk about compromise, less talk about consensus, less talk about critical race theory, and more talk about the cross. We need less talk about our preferences and more talk about his provision. And we need less talk about race in general and definitely more talk about grace. That's our message right now, and it's what he's going to do with the Corinthians. It's, it's what we're going to see in his argument. So let's go there now and, and follow this, because if we understand what Paul's saying in Corinthians, it's not only a message for us as the church of how we're to interact with one another, but it's, this is also the hope for a world that recognizes that unity is a good thing. As much as there's all this, this craziness out there, and there's, there's hurt and, and, and injustice and all sorts of challenges out there, everyone says, hey, the answer is if we could only pass a legislation or come together, we would really be all together. But the Bible has been screaming an answer for 2,000 years to us, and it's our message. We need to know it. So I mentioned that Corinthians is really a book about ecclesiology that the Apostle Paul is writing this Corinthian church. It's one of the earliest letters in the New Testament. And in this this letter, he's dealing with the church. 
And it's so appropriate for us today because it's about ecclesiology, the study of the church. And he's writing them basically to know their identity. He began last week and he talks about how he was called and that they're called and he's constantly giving thanks to God for them and what they have in Christ. He's referring to who they are. And in verse 10, he says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you and that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, the basic argument that Paul's going to make is very simple in our passage. Here's the main idea. We are already unite, unified, so act like it, lest the cross be emptied of its power. We are already unified, so act like it, lest the cross be emptied of its power. So in verse 10, many commentators think this is sort of the, the, the pinnacle verse that really is talking about his whole letter. It, it, he's referring again to three basic arguments in this first sentence. He says, I appeal to you brothers. He, the first reference to them is as brothers. He's not saying I'm appealing to you to become brothers. He said, I'm appealing to you brothers. One of the biggest signs that, that, that's very like, subtle that you'll notice in our world today when it comes to theology is, is that, that divides really biblical theology to like sort of liberal theology is the idea of what we think about man. See, liberal theology says, well, we're all a family of God on earth, and that's not true. Not everyone is the child of God. The Bible doesn't describe that. In fact, when you become a Christian, you are adopted into God's family. Yes, we are all children of Adam and ultimately in the image of God, but we have to be adopted into God's family. And so when that happens by salvation, we become brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a new identity, a new ontological relationship to one another. And he's referring to that at the outset by reminding them brothers. He's referring to them as brothers. And again, this isn't something we're aspiring to be. It's something we are. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ right this moment, the people around you that are believers are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Absolutely, they are your family. And in the same way you didn't pick your normal family, you didn't pick this one, he did. And we're going to get to that in a few weeks too. But he's reminding I appeal to you. I'm, I'm making my case. He uses the word I appeal, I think, 37 times in this letter. The most in all the New Testament. This is his, his urging, his exhortation. I'm appealing to you, brothers. And then he says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's referring to our Lord Jesus Christ. Not my Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord so we have the same family as brothers, and we have the same boss, the same king, the same Lord. Right now, in this church, even though I'm in the middle of two seeming congregations, you know, there's people that have different politics, right? Some of you might be blue, and some of you might be red, and some of you might be, you know, green in your politics. Who knows? Uh, but when we understand who our real king is, you know, vote for Jesus is kind of the thing we're all for. Like we're all going to pull the lever for him. That's the idea that we all have one king and one Lord. He's ultimately the one who's in charge of us. Okay. That's the, that's the reminder at the outset. So again, I'm appealing to you not to strive to become brothers or not to strive to share the same Lord, but I'm appealing to you based on a reality that's already settled. Okay, this is a settled reality. As you sit here right now, we are already unified as family. We are unified as slaves of Christ together. And then he says that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So now he's saying, look, I, you're already brothers and you already have the same Lord. And now I want you all to agree that there be no divisions among you 
and we're united. Notice the reference, same and same, same mind and same judgment. That is to say that we're all supposed to think the same way. We're all supposed to value things the same way. And we're all supposed to agree on those things in the church. That's a big deal. All of us have various convictions. Some of you are convicted about gluten or vegetarianism or veganism or CrossFit or whatever. We all have different things we're into and we all have different pet things we're into when it comes to theology. But what the, what the answer that Paul's saying here is he wants us to be united and have the same mind thinking as one, like a hive mind, right? Thinking with the same judgment, the same ideas of what's good and bad, the same picture of these things. This is his basic argument for the whole letter. Now, why is this so profound? Because you could just say, well, he's just appealing to us and saying these things, but it's not just Paul being cute and saying, you're already brothers, we have the same Lord. This is an ontological answer to the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Go back to John 17. I'm gonna take us through a bunch of familiar passages today and we're gonna read them in larger chunks than normal. I just want you to catch the tenor because the arguments about division in the church, he's going to go through in the entire letter of Corinthians. So we're going to hear about this a lot. I want to just take a broader brush today and just kind of see these things. So here's what Jesus prays. And remember, as we were going through Exodus before, we saw that the high priest was to go before God and represent the people of God in the Holy of Holies, right? And so here's Jesus, the ultimate high priest, and here's his prayer representing, his, representing humanity. He came as a son of man. He came to represent mankind, and here is him coming before the Father with the prayer that he has as the high priest. This is what Jesus wanted and asked of the Father in John 17. Here's his prayer to the Father in front of everyone else. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Earlier, Jesus was accused of blasphemy because he made God his own father, they said, and he made himself equal to God. This prayer to any Jew that was walking around at that time would be so scandalous the intimacy with which he's referring to God as his own father, the intimacy with the way he's speaking is an overwhelming moment. You'd be like scandalized by that. And then he goes on. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know, now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me for they are yours. That's a big one. Verse nine. I'm not praying for the world. I thought for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and Jesus saying now I'm not praying for the world. What he's doing right now is he's making a distinction an in group and an out group. And we think, well, God loves everyone. Um, yeah, he loves everyone so much that all kinds of people can be saved, but he came specifically for people. And he says here, I'm praying for them, not the world. There's an in-group in his family, and that's who he's referring to. He goes on in verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine. He's talking about us, and I'm glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one, 
While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify or set them apart in truth. Your word is truth. As you set me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate, set myself apart, that they also may be sanctified or set apart in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them. Notice again when he says, I want them all to be one so that the world may believe you've sent me. Our unity and oneness is serving a purpose to declare to the world that we're his people. And that not everyone is his people, that there's a decided difference that when you come into the church, you should see people relating to each other in such a way that you say, this isn't how the world is. This isn't the way the world is. Something's different. What is that? It's like, oh, that's because we're his people. That's because we're brothers in his family. That's because we're servants and he's our Lord. That's because we have the same mind. That's because we have the same judgment and value on things always already. He says, I, um, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. And he goes on and he ends it. And he says, I may know to them your name and I'll continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This visible unity is the ultimate answer today to Jesus' high priestly prayer in the church. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit come down and dwell the church. We're told that we're the temple of God. We're the, the house of God. We're the body of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. We are unified and as one. We today at this very moment are the ecclesiological answer to Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is literally what, I mean, this is a big deal. It's not an incidental, oh, I hope you all get along. No, no, no. It's it's paramount in our faith. It's the way he wants to be visibly seen in this world. How do we see Jesus in this world? Yes, it's soup kitchens. How do you see him ultimately? It's y'all loving y'all and being one and united together as one. And so when Paul says in Corinthians that we're already unified, he's not being cute. He's referring to the ultimate reality of Jesus' high priestly prayer. Like the goal of the cross isn't just to cause us to be saved and give you a ticket to heaven. It's to cause you to be saved into a family, into a service, all right, into a place where we already have the mind of Christ and so on and so forth. So he, having said that in Corinthians, Paul refers to this. That's what he's referring to in his argument. And this is key. So having said that, look at verse uh, 11 of our passage. He says, for it's been reported to me by Chloe's people. Now, we don't know who Chloe is. Uh, there's people like, is she, what's she, what's Chloe? Is she like a lady that was a traveler there? Who are Chloe's people? Is she like a female gang leader that was going around making them come through? I don't know. Like, Chloe's people was just some people they know. It, like, I love, <laughs> in the letters, there's all these personal things that we don't know. We're, we're watching a real thing. This isn't, 
you know, the Apostle Paul in a cave just writing random things like Muhammad did, right? This is actually a letter from Paul to real people that we can see in real time and space. And we're kind of given an intro into this. He says, for it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling, fighting among you, my brothers. What he's saying is when he says it's reported to me, he's like, look, I heard this report and I don't like it. I, I got news that there's fighting. Now, we don't need reports because people can see us fighting on Facebook. It's been reported that there's quarreling among you. What I mean is, and what kind of quarreling? He's telling us. Verse 12 is important. He says, what I mean is. See, some people take this passage to be like, hey, quarreling is bad at all costs, so we should never have it. But Paul's going to quantify what he means, the kind of quarreling that was going on. This is important for us. I've heard some people say, listen, this whole passage here is against denominationalism. Look at all the denominations we have. We're not united. The church is all, you know, whether you're this or that, we're all, we're, that's not what this is about, guys. This is not against denominations, all right? Why do I say that? Notice, he says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So people debate as to the extent, and we'll get into this a minute, of what these phrases mean. Were there four factions within the church? Ask yourself this question. Is he saying that there's fighting because there's four factions? This is an early, early church. That there's the Paul faction, there's the Apollos faction, the Cephas, it's Peter faction, or the Christ faction. And if you're going to pick a faction, that's the one you want to be in, I think. (laughs) But notice his answer, verse 13. And this is interesting. He says, is Christ divided? This is a perfect passive uh, word here. And the idea here is the, the idea would say, yes, he is divided. And we know wait, he's not divided. What he's getting to and saying this is a hyperbolic statement. He's like, did Christ get divided up among you? So you each got a piece to have your own little warlord kingdoms over here. May it never be. Was Paul crucified for you? Can you be saved by being loyal to Paul? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now you can see he's pretty angry. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. One, one of the things I think is important is obviously baptism is a thing that we're told to do. And in the Great Commission, Jesus says, go out and make disciples, teaching them and baptizing them. So we have baptism, but clearly baptism isn't necessary for salvation. And if that's your belief, I don't know what you're going to do with this section. Baptism isn't a necessary part of salvation. Baptism is an outward sign of your salvation. Just like a wedding ring isn't actually the thing that makes you married, but it's a great way to show you are. And so this idea here, what Paul is emphasizing, isn't that he's against baptism, but what was happening is people were taking factions and their favorites and seeing what's going on. So before we get into the details of what's going on, let's look at um, 2 Corinthians for a second, chapter 12. And I want to do this largely because this is the ultimate argument that he's making in the whole two letters he wrote. And there's debate whether there's a third letter that we don't have, um, but it wouldn't be scripture because we weren't given it. Um, but the basic argument of his letters, all right? So what's the, how's the second Corinthians end? So my goal, God willing, if Christ should tarry, is that we go first and second Corinthians before we go back to Leviticus. And so we'll see what happens. Um, we're going to take our time. Uh, But here we in 2 Corinthians, here's how it's going to end. He says in verse 19, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all of you are all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, 
I may not, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality they've practiced. Notice there's a few wonderful points here. This church that, that Paul starts off with in such wonderful terms at the beginning is a church that has sensuality, impurity, sexual immorality, sen- you know, all of these things they're practicing. It has hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. It has jealousy and fighting and quarreling and, and anger. And it's God's church. And so if you, if you come to a church, you're like, I don't know if I like this church because these things are there. It's like, well, it was in the Corinthian church. And that was God's church. So Paul's argument in both letters is this. Act like saints because you are saints. And at the end, he says, unless you can't act like saints because maybe it's because you're not saints. And that's my fear. In other words, he begins his letter saying, you're already unified in Christ. You're already brothers. You already have one Lord. You have the same mind and the same things. You already have these things. So act like it. That's his whole thing. Act like it was Christ divided. And he's basically saying like, you have something that's not the way you're acting. So fix it. Act like a saint, act like someone unified, act like brothers, because you are, act like you have one Lord, because you have it, and if you can't, maybe it's because you aren't brothers, maybe it's because you don't have one Lord, that's a big statement, there's a big deal here, so striving to do something that you can't do is an impossibility, like you need to be changed, that's why the world needs the gospel more than anything else, right, because it's the answer, the gospel is what leads to unity as a byproduct, but the way to get unity isn't to preach about unity and getting together and compromising and hearing each other all the time, it's hearing that they need the gospel, and so when people come to the gospel, it affects us, all right, so we have to see that quarreling and fighting is a huge deal in the church, if we remain, like listen, very simply, if People have an issue with one another and they remain quarreling and fighting after hearing about who they are in Christ. The person that's still holding the beef at a certain point is showing themselves, as Paul saying, to be not even saved. It's evidence of that. And certainly 1 John, as we read about in the beginning, tells us about this. Again, this is not about denominations, okay, and doctrine at all. What do we mean by that? This quarreling and fighting. Why would I say it's not about denominations and doctrines at all? Because what, what does that mean? So go to Titus now, chapter 3. I'm just going to point this out very briefly, but after Paul's writing to Titus, just a couple snapshots in these things, he says, verse 13, or 12 rather, when I sent Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. See that they lack nothing. So Paul's urging on Apollos. Paul and Apollos don't have a beef. They're not separate factions that have different doctrinal distinctives. They're on the same team. They're not against one another. We see this go to 2 Peter for a moment. 2 Peter. After Hebrews, you got the James, Johns, and Peters. So 2 Peter. And let's look at chapter 3. I think as I turn to scripture, I'll give you my inner monologue, how I remember where things are. Maybe it'll help us all together. Um, 2 Peter chapter 3, look at verse 14. So here's Peter writing, because remember, one of the factions was the Paul faction. One of the factions was the Apollos faction. One of the factions was apparently the Cephas or the Peter faction. Well, here's Peter writing. He says, therefore, beloved, verse 14, you are waiting for these 
Since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So he's like, hey, we all, all got to get along. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Fun fact here, Peter's referring to Paul's letter as scriptures. He's saying other scriptures. He's referring to the letters of Paul as scripture itself. He's comparing it to the Old Testament and Moses and the Pentateuch and the writings and the prophets and all that. And Paul's letters are up there. They understood precisely that God was working in this way. And so he's saying that I think it's a, a big deal that Peter's saying, yo, what Paul's saying is the word of God. That's a big statement. I would say that Peter and Paul kind of got along, but he says, but he says some things that are hard to understand that who people twist to their own destruction. They, they twist and they mess them all up. Well, in what way do they twist these things? These are doctrinal issues and deviations, but then they got along just fine. The, the, the teachers weren't driving factions, in other words. So when Paul's referring to this in the Corinthian church, I don't think there was real factions necessarily that were driven by doctrine and differences that Apollos was against some, you know, so on and so forth. Go to John chapter three. John chapter three. So it's fair to say that the, uh, there's no beef between any of the people that were listed, but what do they all have in common? Let's talk about the Jesus faction, because that's the one we all think we should be in, the Jesus faction. Well, let's hear about Jesus. Now, even though Jesus isn't having a debate with Paul and Peter, he does with Peter at times, but like, um, here's Jesus and him working together with John the Baptist, the John the Baptizer. Look at what happens in chapter 3, verse 22. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, at this point in time, this was a different kind of baptism than what we see in the church. They were being, it was a baptism of repentance saying that you're waiting for the hope of Israel Regardless of all that aside, though, you see Jesus baptizing, and it says in verse 23, John was also baptizing. So Jesus and John are both baptizing people. And it says in verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Does he say, look, this guy's baptizing and he's got some different things to say? No, not at all. He's just saying, look, people are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I've said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. What a statement from John regarding competition that naturally arose and factions. Now, did John and Jesus have a beef? No. Did, did Peter and, and Jesus and Peter and Paul and Apollos, did any of them have a beef with one another? No, but people naturally set them against each other. That's kind of what Paul's referring to here is that people were taking their names and using it and setting them against each other. And so what do they all have in common? What does Jesus and Paul and Cephas and, and Apollos have in common? Apollos was known for his rhetoric. Uh, 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 Peter was known for his ministry to the Jews. And Paul was known for his ministry to the Gentiles. And Jesus is Jesus. 
But so we could say they have different emphasis, maybe, but they're all on the same team. So what do they all have in common? Ultimately, is celebrity. They're all Christian famous. They're all famous in the Christian world. So go on and, and see what happens in chapter, um, same book, but go a little bit further to chapter four. I don't have it. Yeah, I do. I have it for four, verse one. So we would say, well, here's this story about baptism, but look at chapter four, verse one. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. What's going on here? So Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard. He didn't learn that the Pharisees were causing a trouble. He said that they just heard just because they knew that it was in the conversation that people were measuring how many people people were baptizing. He's like, knowing that's the case, what did Jesus do? He's like, well, I'm Jesus. I'll baptize all of them. Send them to me. No, he left there so that he didn't get in John's way. So first of all, baptism is less important than unity. That's a big statement. Baptizing is less important than unity. And secondly, when you look at this, this, this celebrity culture here, I think this is a huge deal. There's a grave problem that we face in church today, which is celebrity culture. I mean, that's a kind of a big normal thing. It's a grave problem. Pastors are not baseball cards that you can have. The pastoral baseball, I think I saw Babylon B. You don't have pastor, I'll trade you a John Piper for a, 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 a Jay Mack. And oh, well, you got Stephen Furtick. Oh, I heard he's off season right now. Oh, did you hear that so-and-so did this? So this guy did this. And we all know about these guys. We collect them. That's what's going on. And, and the divisions, if you get to see people together, people would set John MacArthur and when he was alive, R.C. Sproul against each other. And there was doctrinal differences, but they, came, they were buddies. They came together and they're like, yeah, you can have different things, but we're the same Lord. And this is a huge deal. The celebrity culture is a problem for many reasons, but let's try to understand why. Go to Mark chapter nine. Because the Corinthian church wasn't unique in the way they were acting. And it's something that we need to understand today. In Mark 29, verse 29, Jesus has gone up on the mountain of transfiguration. It's interesting that in all the gospels, that mountain of transfiguration happens in the middle of multiple scenes we're going to look at today. So here's Jesus, and he's just come down from the mountain of transfiguration. They watched him praying to the Father, transfigured before him. They saw Moses and Elijah, and they come down the mountain. While they were gone, uh, someone, there's a fight because the disciples couldn't cast a demon out of this kid. And they say, why can't you do it? And so Jesus comes up, and he does it. And he casts a demon out of the kid. And they're like, why can't we cast it out? Why couldn't we do that? Why didn't we have the power to do that? And so Jesus replies to him, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This isn't just a statement. This is a rebuke. Jesus, God's son, the God himself in the flesh relied upon prayer. He was dependent on prayer. These disciples didn't pray. Why? Because they thought they could do it. You kind of forget that we're dependent on God. He's like, when he says, if Jesus is praying and we're not, that's a rebuke, isn't it? So he's like, this one only comes out by prayer. And you're like, uh. So then they went on from there and they passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered in the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he's killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. In other words, this went against all of their views for success, right? Their views of, of greatness was that they could cast demons out, that they basically had magic power. Their views of success is they were just to be awesome. And he's like, so this is what's going to happen. I'm going to go die on a cross and rise again. Like, what? 
Jesus is getting crazy here. Maybe he needs more sleep. We need to help him out. Verse 33. So they come to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? What were you guys talking about? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. In light of Jesus saying, I'm going to go to the cross, after seeing him on the Mount of Transfiguration, and God saying, this is my son, listen to him, he's the greatest. They say, he's the one praying, he's the one going to the cross. They're on the way, he's like, what were you guys talking about on the way? They're like, who's the greatest? We relate to this though. Don't look down on them. This is how we all are. It's when they leave, it's like, we're fighting over the scraps. Like, well, which one of us is the highest rank? What's the greatest? What's going on? And they're quiet about it. So he sat down, he called the 12. He said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and and, uh, taking him in his arms, he said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Children were not valued in that culture at that time. Children didn't have rights at all. They weren't spoken to. You ignored children. So when he says, let the little children come, it's a big deal. But more than that, children were ultimately and utterly dependent. They were, they were like similar to like, you know, stray dogs running around. Literally, to, to, they weren't just taken care of the way we are in our culture today. They were utterly dependent on the mercies of adults. And so here we see Jesus saying, you want to be the greatest? Be like this. Don't be childish. Be childlike. Be dependent upon the Father. Be ultimately humble and dependent. And he goes on in verse 38, John said to him, well, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. What we're seeing here is dumbness again and again and again from the disciples. This is supposed to make you feel better, by the way. There's a dumbness of the disciples. They're just not getting him. And Jesus is like, what are you doing? What's going on? Now, go with me to chapter 10 of the same book, same kind of storyline. And if you just, that's what I mean about big sections. When you see these big sections, we see this, this story, like they were already fighting over each other about who was greatest. They want, each wanted to build a tower in their own name. Who's going to have the biggest tower? Who's going to have the biggest Babel tower? You know, like that's the thing. So we see this contrast and you get to chapter 10, verse 35. And it says, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I'd love for my kids to say this. Dad, dad, I want you to give me anything I'm about to ask. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? He didn't say yes. He said, what do you want me to do for him? I love this though, because later he says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do. What changed? Because later we're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and we're going to ask with a whole new desire and the Holy Spirit will pray with unutterable groanings. But right now they didn't. He says, what do you want? (laughs) What do you want? And they said, grant us, that's James and John here, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So they basically got him aside, they got his ear, and they played politics. They're like, hey, the rest of the 12 disciples are great, but let us too be your right hand and left hand man. Let us be the ones that are right there. This is the kind of thing of I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Christ. I'm, each one was a, a chance to kind of talk about your favorite emphasis, your favorite thing. Here they're doing the same thing back when they're walking with Jesus. His own disciples are doing it, so you better believe we're doing it. And he says, Let's do this. And Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking. Duh. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I'm baptized? And they said, we're able. (laughs) And he's like, well, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it's been prepared. Now we think, well, those two are the worst. The rest of them are okay. Nope. When the 10 heard it, they became indignant at James and John. They're like, wait, because they realized that they got the jump on them because they got Jesus alone to ask him. They all wanted, they were all vying for position. 
And he says, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's interesting when we look at polity and how churches are organized. The Bible doesn't describe each and every way to do so. But one of the things that's interesting is we have elders at this church. Elders come together and we speak about things. And if you're curious how we make decisions, we don't vote for anything. We're in total agreement for every decision we make. And if we aren't in agreement, we wait till we are. And we work together to be in agreement. And the reason why is what does he say in Corinthians? What's his letter? He says, I want you to be of the same mind and and totally agree and have the same judgment, no divisions. And that's how we all ought to be. It's not that we can't have disagreements, but we have the same value judgments and that we work together to come to those things. Now, why is that the case? Or why should that be the case for how we operate? Well, if we're all having politics and our own concerns and we are setting ourselves against each other, we would have division. But because we have a supernatural, ontological new unity, we actually care about each other in the same mission. And it's amazing what you can accomplish when you don't care who gets credit. There's people that were setting up things that were here till one, two in the morning doing stuff. People working on the ministry center for free, for all the silent people doing all sorts of service that no one sees, all in the name of Christ. And they, they do so just because they care about the Lord. That's the picture of this unity. And we're going to see this as we go forward here. Praise God, he doesn't give me what my flesh wants. What, is, what we see here is what does greatness and humility have to do with unity? Now, I'm kind of hinting at it right now, but go to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. After Hebrews is James. It's an easy way to remember that. Hebrews is towards the end. It's a big one. James chapter 4. James really puts it to us, and I want you to contrast everything that Jesus says with what James is saying. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Ooh, do tell. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you, and you, do not, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Isn't that our issue right now? We desire and do not have. We covet and cannot obtain. We ask and don't get. And so instead of being submissive and all these things, what do we do? I want to get these things and you have it. So I have to murder you. I could do that through my anger, my hatred, my opposition to you. I want what you have or someone has and I can't get it. So I'm going to fight you. I'm going to quarrel with you. He says, if, and when I ask God for things in your prayers, you think about our prayer life, what are we praying for? God, I want, I want the promotion. Why are you against me? I want, you know, a bigger thing. Why are you against me? And we see this here. And he says, you adulterous people. That's big words here. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It makes you the enemy of God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's worldliness in the church. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This is the point right here. It's the same argument Paul's making. God's already given us his spirit and he jealously yearns over his spirit in us to act. And when we act in another way, it shows that we are not faithful to his spirit who's in us. That's why we're adulterers. He's given us new desires. We'll get into that in just a minute. And so he goes on, but he gives more grace. Therefore says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. There's this, Paul's issue right now to the Corinthian church was basically the same argument that James was saying. It's the same thing Jesus was saying. It's the same message throughout the scripture that it is not an incidental detail that we are united. So let's go to our last verse of the passage. Paul basically starts off and tells them who they are. You're brothers. You have one Lord. We have, we're supposed to have the same mind. We have the same mind and we have the same judgment. He says, but instead you're not acting like it, like you should. And so what does he say? Verse 17 well, you need to compromise. You need to reach the, uh, an agreement because you all have different ideas. So let's come together and we'll write them on a list and you give a little and you give a little and we'll just have you come. That's not what he says at all. The answer for their disunity was what? For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He's like, my message to you is the gospel. That's what you need to hear. It's not about who's baptizing who. It's about the gospel. And you need that because that's the power of God. And the way you're acting is showing that the power of God isn't in you. Is it true or not? That's his basic argument. What do we mean by this? Go to Luke chapter 9. We're going to fly through this last section here. Luke chapter 9, verse 21. Jesus, in a similar fashion, right before the transfiguration, right? So that same moment on the mountain, says in verse 21, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That sounds like bad news, isn't it? Doesn't that say, if you're with Jesus, he's like, hey, guess what? I'm going to get rejected and murdered. That sounds like bad news. And yet that is the good news. That's the good news. And so he says to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Notice what this statement that's being said here. We say we believe it, but we don't. That's because we could see it in the way we get so upset when we lose things we think we want. I'm no different than you. We're all in the same place. What if, like, the thing that we have to see, like, how does this relate? How does this section, when he says, if you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me, and lose your life for me. We're like, yeah, yeah, that sounds great, Matt. But we don't really believe him because other sections, in John 10, 10, for example, Jesus says, I came that they would have life and have it abundantly. And we, like the disciples and the Corinthians, like to decide what we think the abundant life is. But we're wrong. And we're going to see this next week more and more and more. The, the cross is not only the implement of torture that God incidentally used to show and to, to, to cause his son to pay for our sins. I mean, he could have just, you know, Jesus took our sins and did what? He took our sins in the stoning to death. He took our sins and fell off a cliff. But no, it was an implement of humiliation. The cross is the ultimate humiliation. And that's the thing that God used to pay for us. The cross is not only what Jesus accomplished. It's not only a historical reality. It is also the very wisdom of God for human flourishing. 
The cross is the wisdom of God for human flourishing. These verses, it is precisely the denial of yourself that is the abundant life. This is a big deal. This is, it's the denial of self that is the abundant life. The desires we have that cause us to murder and quarrel and be upset, that's the thing that's causing our strife and our struggles. And he's like, the cross isn't an invitation to get rid of things that are good for you. It's to get rid of things that are harming you. You want the abundant life? Get rid of self. It's the self that is so large and looms large. You want to see the light of God blow out your own candle. Like that's the picture that we see. And just we see this all through scripture. Go to Galatians 5. Galatians 5. I'm going to go quick, but whatever. Paul says in Galatians, walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Does it mean to be excited and get the chills when you hear good music? Maybe. But he tells us what it means. The desires of, don't gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. This is what you want. All of us want these things in our flesh. All of us. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. All of us in our flesh want enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. When Jesus says, deny yourself, we think, oh, he's telling me to deny all the good things I want. But what he's really saying is, deny your anger, your jealousy, your fits of anger, and your rivalries, and your dissensions, and your strife, and your divisions. Deny that, and instead, do what? Instead, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If you want love and joy in your life, do we want that? I do. Do you want peace and patience in your life and goodness and gentleness and self-control in your life? Deny yourself. That's the picture, he says. Why? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ, provoking one another, envying one another. What if contentment wasn't about more or mere fulfillment and desire, but right desires? The power of the cross-centered unity is right here. Go to Colossians 3. Same idea in Colossians 3. What does Paul write? If, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is unity. This is where it comes from. Set your minds on the things that are above. We're supposed to be in, of same mind. Not on things that are on the earth. Verse three, for you have died. Notice he's referring again to the reality of who they are, what's already transpired in their lives. Do these things because you are. That's the biblical argument. The world's argument, every false cult, every group that's wrong says, do these things so you become. The Bible says, do these things because you are. By virtue of what he did. Before you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what are we supposed to do? How do we live the abundant life and have unity in our midst? Put to death, therefore what's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetous, which is idolatry. We look at these things as if, as if these things in us are gross, but they're lovely. We love, we love covetousness and idolatry and passion and evil desire. We love it. 
Put that to death. Kill it. Deny yourself. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not, know when he says this, it sounds like we just be good people out in the world, but they always, and Paul always, and the authors of scripture always center us back onto how we treat one another. The evidence of this, walking in the spirit, is not seen because you paid for the guy at Starbucks behind you. That's great, do that. It's seen how you treat the knuckleheads in this room. <laughs> do not lie to one another, seeing that you put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of his creator. There's not, but here there is not G Greek or Jew circumcised on their circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. There's no place in this church or any church for intersectionality and all the crap that people are trying to bring in. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. What? Bearing with one another. Not bearing with the world, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. That's our normal basis on how we live. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive one another. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. So this is not just how you live your life as advice for the you know, chicken soup for the Christian soul. This is how we live as a congregation. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, and whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Look, the world doesn't want the answer that scripture gives. Why? The time will come when people will be lovers of themselves. They don't want to deny themselves. And so they'll find teachers to tell them now how they can just continue to love themselves more. And the Bible says, deny yourself. That's the abundant life. It's waiting. That's where unity is. That's the true cross-centered unity that we have. Almost done. Go to Ephesians 4. This sort of snapshot of large sections of scripture, I kept saying, I'm going to edit this verse out, edit this verse. I couldn't. I couldn't anymore. I've edited down as far as I can. So instead of reading the whole chapter, I'm going to basically read the whole chapter, but let's look at verse one. <laughs> therefore, I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to what? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That's his whole argument to the Corinthians. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness and with patience, doing what? Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. He's not saying you can become one, but you already are one body, one spirit, one hope, and you belong to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who's over all and through all and in all. And he talks about grace and whatnot, but then he talks about teachers. He says, and he gave, verse 11, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers. That's, so elders is a picture of this. Why? Why did he give me to the church? Why did he give elders to the church? Hey, he says, I'm a gift of, from God to the church. Each pastor is supposed to be a gift of God to the church. For what purpose? Verse 12, to equip the saints for their work, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to what? The unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Till we grow up in unity. The, our unity of the faith is a sign of our maturity in Christ. 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We're already unified and perfect. We don't need to keep preaching about race. We don't need to keep preaching about our preferences and our desires and what this, we have to preach more about grace. We need to preach more about the things here. That's the whole goal is to grow up in a, a unified knowledge of Christ. He says in verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Verse 19, they become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality and their greed to practice every kind of impurity. Verse 22, put off your old self. It belongs to your former manner of life and it's corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? We already have that. Therefore, verse 25, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. Because of our unity, we should act like unified people. Be angry, do not sin. That's not just about marriage, it's about each other. Don't let the sun go down on your anger against one another. That's not just about, hey, don't fight with your wife in bed and then go to sleep. It means don't fight with anyone here and go to sleep. If your brother has something against you, go settle that before you come to the altar type thing, right? Let no corrupting talk, verse 29, come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may be give grace to those here. Who's the divisive one? Someone speaks and they're saying a subject and you say, does that build up? And you're like, no. I'm like, stop talking. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you already. Last verse, go to Philippians 1. Just like in the Ephesian letter, he says and ends Philippians and says, only, verse 27, it's one book over, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm. What is it? So what does it mean to live our life worthy of the gospel of Christ? Yes, we have good sound doctrine. We're going to grow into that. But what's the visible picture of it? That you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. That's to say that the world wants us to find other ways to unify. Oh, we're going to be hipster church. We'll get special coffee and wear, I don't know, is it like we'll be lumberjack church. Let's say that. That's easier. We're all going to wear flannels, beards, and have axe-throwing competitions, and we'll have that church. And This is one of the reasons why when we have our groups in the church, we don't want our groups to be organized around affinity. Oh, this is the, the, only the groups that, now you all are going to do that naturally in your lives, but as a church, we don't want to organize that because you're all going to do it naturally. The church is something supernatural. It's a group where we are one side by side in Christ. That's why you should have teenagers and 70-year-olds coming together. And what do they have in common? That's the visible picture the world needs to see. Not the mountain biking Christian club. You can have a mountain biking club that's not Christian. There's nothing awesome about that. What's awesome is seeing people have nothing in common, love each other beyond what anyone could ever expect. That supernatural, visible picture that, oh, that's where Christ is. Only Christ could be there because that's impossible to imagine. This is a clear sign to them. Those that disagree with this of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. As the world's dividing everywhere, people should come into this church and be like, whoa, that is crazy. And it should judge them in their divisiveness. 
For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, and any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by what? Being of the same mind. There it is. Having the same love, being in full accord. It's not about being in one Honda. It's about all agreeing together and, and of one mind. He's repeating himself. Well, what does that look like? Well, how about let's look at verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He's not saying to look down on yourself. He's just saying to not look at yourself anymore. Focus on other people. It's the wonderful beauty of self-forgetfulness. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. And verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind, which you have today. All of you that are in Christ have this right now, have this in you, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We have that same mind in us. We have that same humility in us because of what he did supernaturally. You can have unity with one another. We have that in us. And just so you wonder what it looks like to have that humility, this is the real path to greatness because what happened in this? Therefore, because of this humility, ultimate humility, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. I'm gonna make one last point in this verse 12. Remember, this is a letter flows. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Exercise what you have in Christ with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Our unity is not only a sign to the world of what's going on, it is literally our worship right now. When we sing, that's worship, but the ultimate picture of our worship, the ultimate thing that the angels in the cosmos, Galatians 3.10, are looking at is our love for one another. That's our worship. Let's take a quick look at a video. Let's pray. Father, I want to first pray for those that don't know you today that are hearing about this alien relationship towards one another. It sounds crazy. I pray that they would recognize that they don't have this in their lives, not in any real sense. I pray they would recognize their own selfish ambition that we all have. They would see that their desires set themselves against those around them so naturally, like all of us. They would recognize, Father, that you sent your son into this world not to cause us and teach us how to become better people, but to actually die for terrible people that would put their faith in him. I pray for those that don't know you today, that are here or watching, that they would for the first time ever in their lives, recognize that they are a sinner that deserves the wrath of God. They deserve your wrath and they would trust the finished work of Jesus Christ to substitute for them on the cross, to take their punishment. That they would take not only that by faith, but recognize the wonderful gift that you've given them because of that, that you have given them a family, a unity, a salvation that they can experience now. And I pray, Father, that our church is a wonderful picture of that. Would you use this sermon in a profound way in this church and throughout our communities? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.